Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide entrepreneurial learning and business training to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our New Mexico listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Tammy Garcia, Peter Hurd, and of course, Clark Hewlings. Our guest today is Steve Preneau. Steve is a founder of Free Agent Source, Inc., a management consulting company that applies sharing economy principles to client engagements. His consulting practice leads executives and business owners to overcome business uncertainty by deploying a flexible workforce. Now, Steve's career experience includes roles as consultant, solution architect, and agile program manager. Steve has specific expertise in workforce management, HR, payroll, accounting, software development, and enterprise app integration. And Steve also holds an MBA from Vanderbilt University and currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, Daniel. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, I should, full disclosure, acknowledge that in addition to my role at the Clark Hewlings Fund, I also have a role at Free Agent Source as your business partner. We're co-founders, though the original idea is yours. Yes, and it's been an excellent journey. You know, an acknowledgement uh, in reverse, uh, another disclosure, you're an advisory board member for the Clark Hewlings Fund. And I want to know, what is it about the fund's mission that appeals to you? Well, it, art is a business, and artists should run it. There's not that much difference, in my opinion, between an artist who's focused on their work but not finding a lot of buyers and, say, a, a consultant or a practitioner who who focuses on their trade skill but uh, may not know how to find their own client engagements. So that's a subject, as you know, that I'm very interested in. Once I came to know uh, the Clark Hewlings Fund um, and was asked to participate, I thought, oh yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and I'm glad to share what I have. So, tell us more about Free Agent Source. Why did you start it, and uh, what need did you see and and try to meet by founding that? Free Agent Source was started initially as a as a vehicle for myself and maybe any colleagues and partners who wanted to to join. Really, as a response to to uncertainty around you know having a long term job. As as companies oscillate, as they go through rounds of layoffs, and as you worry about losing your own job, or at least I uh, think about losing my own job, um, I came to the conclusion I don't want to live like this and work like this anymore. And uh, but I didn't really know how to how to take care of myself in the wild, so I created the company so that it could be a, a sort of a permanent home base as we go from gig to gig, and my work is project-based, but most, uh, I won't say most, many people nowadays are in limited engagements, even if they're a regular employee. So it was created as a vehicle to to live, to, to, to operate in this project-based economy that we have and sort of provide that home base. So tell me, what's the main reason or what are the main reasons that clients come to you at Free Agent Source? So clients come to us and me, and it depends on, you know, all of us have different skills. It's usually that particular thing that we do. So there's a, they'll, they'll have some sort of pain point. In my case, it's related to corporations, larger companies and their workforce, uh, meaning they usually use some sort of app or tool to, to keep track of all the data and how to pay everyone and who's, who's what and where. Uh, I haven't specialized in that from a from an IT perspective, 
and they find you based on a, a profile, I suppose, very similar to someone browsing portfolios on Society6 and, and finding our work that they like. So that's how it, it's a, we find each other as a, from the perspective of a problem or a need that needs to be solved. So is there a, a particular sector that Free Agent Source serves? I mean, if, if you give us a, a typical target client, uh, would that be right? Well, with the, the kind of work that I do and my colleagues do is, is uh, bigger company problems. Um, they we're hired. It, it's it's not small budget stuff. So they they will hire someone like myself or or colleagues when they have uh, their larger larger enterprise apps uh, have an issue or they need to implement a new one. They need to update it, integrate it with others. Things like that. So um, larger corporate clients, larger meaning 500 employees and above, sometimes uh, 200 employees and above. But a lot of our client projects uh, clock in at you know a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand employees. So the big companies, which is which is kind of interesting because we're not of a large company ourselves, but yet they're kind of going out on the open market looking for consultants like us. So it's not the same as say a, a freelancer. Or um, maybe a, a small business accountant that, that handles business for, say, a, a local restaurant that has uh, 10 employees, things like that. So it's a good pivot um, because uh, you're working with primarily enterprise and, and midsize uh, companies. Uh, and yet, um, in addition to being a board member at the Clark Healings Fund, uh, you're also one of the instructors in the Business Accelerator Program, which is a graduate level program for teaching business skills to working artists. And uh, in that capacity, you led a workshop in uh, our business accelerator program called Explicitly Defined Milestones. Um, and in that, you encouraged the fellows in the program to create milestones in a larger proposal for a project. Uh, milestones that are verifiable uh, by some outside source, you know, that are objective. Uh, and so I'd like to start off with what does that mean? What makes a milestone verifiable? Yeah, this is a, this is something that we do in, in my work. Uh, you'd be surprised that there are varying interpretations of what done is. And so in my work, particularly when you're dealing with a client, as, and often there are multiple vendors involved. So when you have this orchestration of, of constituencies and, and participants, you need a common definition of done. And so we focus on does it work? In the software business, we we try to bring it all the way down to um, a statement of something that is objectively verifiable. If we were to tell someone else the statement of what done is and they don't really know what the business is, they should still be able to look at the result and say, yes, that's done. No, it's not done. And it's essentially, a, yes, it works. No, it doesn't. So for an artist, we talked about this in terms of I'm working on a new studio, that is not a verifiable end. We're just working. So we're really looking for both a verifiable uh, completed task or milestone as well as that focus drives momentum. So we're basically translating what we, what I do in my work and hundreds of thousands of people in the software business do this with each other on projects. So why not translate that? 
Well, so it's interesting, and a lot of people might think that we're we're talking about sort of the project of preparing your art, but you know, to clarify, um, CHF teaches business skills to working artists. So we're not talking about the actual craft. You know, okay, I've got the canvas gessoed. Uh, that's a milestone. Uh, but we're talking about um, when you do a pivotal project to advance your professional career that there are these milestones. So I can think, for example, of uh, one of our fellows who was uh, doing exactly what you said, building uh, a new studio, and the studio was to house uh, a letterpress operation that was to uh, translate her art into a new format. And so there are milestones like um, acquiring the actual uh, printing equipment and uh, you know identifying uh, publishers through a number of criteria, et cetera. So my question is, um, can you recall seeing a good example of this implementation of verifiable milestones in the program? Every one of the artists that we that we work with was able to shift out of some sort of concept of I'm working on this, I'm busy on this to this is really done. So in your what you just said is I'm now put in place this new equipment to to produce a print on a large format, or I now have gallery representation, or I now have booked this show and I'm committed to it, things like that. So every one of them started translating their progress into something that's verifiable. Now, the interesting thing, the, the confluence between work that I do, the way I earn a living, and the way artists prepare their work is similar, but yet when it comes to these, these objectives and making progress in their business, even though that is also a similar process, we're translating those skills. And so we're finding the whole purpose of the program is to be able to transfer what they already know as an artist and now do it with their business. For example, and I'm not an artist, but I'm going to tell you what I see, is if an artist has a concept in mind, something they want to express, they often don't just go for it. They'll draft it, they'll sketch it in pencil or some other conceptual type uh, way. And they might work through it through several iterations of it before they say, okay, now I've got it. Now I've thought of it enough. I'm going to go for it. And those are verifiable steps that they're trying to work out. And this is how you deal with the uncertainty of, well, I've got this kind of vague idea, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And that's really what the workshop was about. And that's what we do in business a lot nowadays. There's, I think there's this preconceived notion that people in business know what they're going to build. And it's it's a creative process, very much like what artists do. And that's why I like being a part of this program, because I get inspiration from artists and see how they go through their journey. And I try to borrow from that and bring it back to the projects that we do. So bringing it together into turning your art into a business, they all are able to take these iterative steps, getting clearer and clearer and clearer, learning along the way, just like you might learn from making a sketch. Oh, that doesn't work quite like I thought. So let me back up and try a different way. It's and it's an experimental approach. So yes, in in the end, I, I you asked for a specific example, and I'm, I'm telling you, everybody just kind of kind of went through it. Um, uh, but it's uh, so I'm just going to say this. Everybody went from a point of less clear to more clear and to identifiable definitions of this is done. 
Well, great. So uh, let me ask you this. What's the value of building an investment grade project plan or proposal? I mean, I, I think a lot of professional artists listening might be wondering, you know, what does that got to do with making art? Oh, I love that. So I was, I was a couple of weeks ago, I was at Startup Art Fair in LA, or actually Venice, and uh, that was one of the things that we talked about is that the Clark Hewlings Fund focuses on preparing an investment grade proposal. And the point is not necessarily uh, you can you can use your proposal to literally attract benefactors or, or patrons or or acquire uh, funding for your project, and many do. But the point is, is it going through that process of what am I offering? What is the exchange? What is the value that I bring? That clarifies the mind so that now you're starting to focus on things that really do matter to you and are consistent with your goals. That's part of the clarification process that we were talking about. So this investment grade proposal, force, the process of writing it and preparing it forces clarity. No longer are we allowed to be kind of vague and have this idea in our head. As soon as we have to translate into a written document, just like as soon as we have to translate a concept into a sculpture or onto canvas or onto paper, that requires uh, quite a bit more clarity. And so, in my opinion, the benefit isn't necessarily the end proposal or whether you actually got funding for your project. It's that it clarified what your direction is and how you're going to get there. And everyone who gave full effort to that process came out of it saying, oh, yeah, now I now I really know how I'm going to get to my goals and achieve my dreams. Now, uh, does a, do you think an IGP makes sense? Uh, again, investment grade, project plan or proposal. Do you think an IGP makes sense for an artist who's producing individual pieces as opposed to large-scale projects? Or does it not matter because the type of art is not the issue, but it it's the, the business effort uh, that you're you're planning that's right yeah it's it, what your art actually is and the scale of it is is not the point the point is if your intention is to to be more than a hobbyist a hobbyist is someone in my opinion who just ex- needs to express themselves as we all do through their art then but no intention beyond that basically i'm going to create and stick it in the attic or give it away that's fine but Whatever the scale of your art is, if you intend to earn a living from it and basically bring those two worlds together, people who are hobbyists generally have to survive, have to earn a living in some other way, and so they have separate worlds. I have a job and I have my art. The ideal world and the world that we want to make possible for as many artists as possible is to have the two together, express ourselves through our art and earn a living from it. And so... The investment grade proposal creates the roadmap for us to do that. Uh, and it doesn't matter what, what your art is. If your intention is to earn a living from it and to thrive in your art, then that proposal will help you figure out how you're going to get there. So what's the similarity between the IGP that we're asking professional artists to create uh, in our programming and IGP style protocols or project plans in your business within Free Agent Source. Well, it 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 it's the process of coming to clarity. It's 
you can, you can find out from someone who prepares a proposal like this, just, just the same way startup companies pitch to investors, uh, especially investors who have seen a lot of these, they can tell real fast how much the founders have thought this through. And it, and it helps you work out where there might be some consistencies. The, the act of writing it and preparing the numbers and what are the steps that I have to take? What is it that I don't know? What do I do know? What do I don't know? Finding the gap. All of those things give you a sense of what it's going to take to get there. And sometimes it'll tell you, well, my current route isn't feasible. Doesn't make sense. I didn't realize that before, but now that I see it on paper, paper and I've really thought it through and read it out and presented it, Maybe someone else pointed out, well, there are some inconsistencies. So all of that is very similar in the business world, in my opinion. Now, uh, showing that you can finish a project within budget and time frame makes you a good bet for future investments. Uh, does this mean that businesses such as an individual working artist should do early work on spec? And buy that for the audience, if you don't haven't heard that phrase, doing work on spec, that means sort of working for free in order to build reputation, make a name for yourself, and prove that you can deliver. Steve, what do you think of that? I want to be careful about working for free. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary. Just about anyone can provide some form of value, and, and therefore it's worth an exchange. There's two questions in there, I think. One is, what do we give away? And, and of course, even with my clients, I, I always encourage them to sample early and at no charge. I want them to get to know me and know the value of what myself or my project team can do. But that's not necessarily giving it away for free. That's actually increasing their understanding of what they're going to get. And so I actually have more credibility when they've sampled what I can do and we go back and say, well, here's the full proposal. Here's what it's going to cost. Now that I understand more about what you need, it's a, it's a much more precise way to, to start up the relationship. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, uh, giving it for, for free. If you're, say, a new artist or starting out, you might have some compromises or ways that you can get yourself involved with the client. And that's, that's what we do. Uh, is that involvement is it, it increases familiarity, it increases trust, and it also helps us uh, understand what they're really looking for. And so, if I were an artist, I might be able, to, if I'm doing some work that's been commissioned, I might be able to, if I understand what understand them better, uh, I might be able to prepare my work that that is tailored to their interests a little bit better. Now, uh, the part of working to spec. I think there's this notion out there that, you know, we can, we can uh, just commit to the deadlines and the budgets and, you know, an excellent project manager or an excellent artist will always hit this. And the reality is there's a lot of uncertainty along the way. And so how do we, how do we deal with that? And that, and, and as you know, you, you introduced me mentioning on, I have an agile program management background, which is, in business, it's how we deal with uncertainty. How do we commit to a project when we don't really know how we're going to get there? And so people who can hit something, uh, a spec on time, on budget, they're either doing something that they've done before, or they're really familiar, or they've, they've put a heck of a lot of padding in there and the customer's paying more than they probably should have. 
So what we do when we're working to spec is if you don't know how you're going to get there and how much it's going to cost, then you want to break that down into the things you do know and then put a spec and a cost to that for the things that are known and then call out the things that are not known. Sometimes the client won't accept that in business. Sometimes they'll like accept, yep, I understand the steps that are known. Let's go ahead and take that, take those steps. Uh, in other cases, they don't want to proceed unless they know the whole project. And if, in my business, if there's a lot of uncertainty there and, it, and it's a new path for me, I won't do it. I won't commit because there's a good chance you know, we're going to lose a lot and have to solve the problem without being paid for it. Occasionally, if the problem is not that big but it's still uncertain, we'll take it, knowing that if it goes sideways and it becomes more complex than we thought, we we'll chalk it up as a learning experience and we'll be able to price more accurately in the next time. So it's kind of a kind of a guess. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, it's a choice is what I meant to say. It's a personal choice. Well, uh, artists are certainly frequently asked to do work on spec. Um, often museums will ask for you know up to ten or twelve pieces a year at no cost and. Uh, and then you have other <laughs> other people sort of offering that challenge, nonprofits and other groups. Uh, and it can really overwhelm a young artist who uh, buys into the, the doctrine that, you know, you got to pay your dues, kid. You got to work for free in order to uh, make a name for yourself in this town. And, um, you know, the, the question often comes up, too. Well, even if you accept a small percentage of that work and if you don't limit it, it'll get out of control fast. Um, but if you, even if you do something on spec, who pays the costs? Um, do you do it all for free and you also eat, uh, the costs of transportation and storage and preservation and insurance and everything else? Or, or, um, do you simply, uh, pass everything but the fee on to the, to the end user, the client? Well, this is a approach. This is an attitude and a perspective that I think is really important. And it also came up at the startup art fair, but I, I, hear about it from Elizabeth Hewings and in the community. And this is the thing. This is this is foundational, fundamental in my opinion. And it's one of the things we hope to convey through the Clark Hewings Fund, which is this. It's your art and you should manage should manage the business. You're in control. Even though you may not know how the business works or how something should be done, doesn't mean you should necessarily concede to someone else's whim. This is the this is the dark side that we want artists to be able to face down. Which is, of course, there's plenty of people out there in in music, in art, in other industries, uh, certainly in the in movies and television, where ooh, if I can convince this talented actor that they need to be dependent on me, then I can exploit them. It's not true everywhere. There's lots of plenty of good-natured, uh, well-intentioned people who are doing good, um, but there are those who will certainly take advantage of the situation. So I would suggest to any artist that is wondering, how do I get started? First of all, if, if it's starting to feel like, oh, you must do this or you won't be successful, if it doesn't fit right, follow your instincts and then pay attention to programs like the Clark Humans Fund, which are going to put you in a mindset to stand your ground, look after your first, after yourself, understand clearly what you're wanting to accomplish. It may or may not fit with the person who's suggesting to you that you need to do a whole lot up front for free. 
So Steve, you recently did another podcast with me, actually, uh, where we talked about the need to identify a problem that people are trying to solve and then adjust your message accordingly. But is art really like that? I mean, how do you find the problem that art solves? I mean, let's say I make sculptures of fire engines, etc. Yeah, so there's a little slide of hand. And this is this is my perspective on it, that in business, we're looking for our people who have problems that we can solve. In the art world, and I would say in music, we may not be looking for problems, but we're looking for our people, our people who who feel or feel something that they like when they experience our art. We have some sort of connection. They may not experience the same thing. They may not receive the same message that the artist meant to convey, but it's still meaningful. Their experience with it is meaningful to them, and that's what I tend to call their people. So that's the positive. That's the benefit. So it's a it's a sleight of hand difference where in business the problem the rea the reality is in business we're looking for a problem as an indicator of of a potential customer but in the end the customer's going to be happy because they got value out of it and in the end with art or music the person who paid for it got something for it there was a reason that they did and and to the extent that the artist can figure out what are those patterns. What is it that's connecting? Many of them know, some of them don't. We even talk about this sometimes in the business accelerator program. Those, those are your people. So in business problems with uh, art, your audience, who are your people? Well, I, I think also that brings up the question, you know, how do I identify my audience and, and then how do I make a meaningful connection with the audience when I do and where do I start as an artist? Yeah, definitely. It, it, it starts with paying attention to anything about people who are buying, uh, whether you're interacting with them online in, in Facebook or if they contacted you directly through the website or you're talking to them at an, at an art fair or in your studio. That's always an opportunity to engage with them. Some, some things that uh, in, in business, a, a consultant or a practitioner may not think to ask is, how is it, how did you find me? Or how did this problem start in the first place? And so an artist might start engaging by asking questions and people love to answer questions when you ask them. What, what does this mean to you? Why did you like this one versus that one? Why does this, uh, uh, get a hold of you? And those kinds of questions will start to illustrate patterns, not not with just one person, but if you do it consistently with the people who are buying your art and also the people who don't, good to know why they don't, um, then you'll, you'll see this start to emerge. You're listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. To support this effort with a gift of any amount, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. We'd certainly appreciate any help in ensuring working artists receive valuable business education in digestible formats they already routinely consume. So, Steve, uh, you've become really interested in sales. It's your thing now. Uh, and in an interview with CHF for our expert column series, uh, I had said there's no such thing as an easy sale. Uh, in other words, you got to do the work. I wonder if there's anything you would add to that or would you subtract from it, maybe not agree? I would definitely add to it. We have to do the work of developing our audience 
developing our customer base. It doesn't matter. I, I don't believe um, there are very many stories out there of somebody naturally going viral or somebody who just catches fire and, oh, wow, this person is awesome, whether it's an artist or musician or it's a business. Maybe it happens sometimes, but the majority of those have a backstory of someone did the work of developing their story, finding their audience, asking those questions that we talked about before of, hey, what is it that you liked about my art? What is it that you didn't like? And starting to find a pattern and then doing the work of using that information to, to grow the audience or in business, grow the customer base. So um, yeah, in, in my opinion, there are very few accidental stories of things just taking off by themselves. Well, you know, there's always that analogy from Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. And I think that a lot of artists are sort of saddled with that mythology um, that if you're good enough, you'll get sales. Uh, and I sort of liken that to faith healing. You know, it's when you, you see one of those faith healing rallies and, and uh, someone says, if you really believe, you know, your arm will grow back. And uh, when your arm doesn't grow back, of course, it's, ah, oh, well, you, you just, you didn't believe. You weren't, you didn't have enough faith. And it's almost like saying to an artist that's struggling to sell, well, it's probably because you're not, you're not good enough. Uh, and that, that's a real existential uh, attack on artists that is sort of implied in the current system. And uh, so I want to dig into this a little bit more because uh, this sort of goes into the sales mentality and, and what does it take to sell and, and how do we partner with people to sell and, and so on. So, you know, one could say not everyone is a salesperson. Uh, I want to ask if you agree with that statement uh, or disagree. Everyone is a, is a salesperson. Everyone should be a salesperson in the same way that for most of us, we need a driver's license. For most of us, we need to use a phone. We, don't, we wouldn't say, oh, only some people can use a phone. So for me, selling and sales skills, which is, which is really about paying attention to what the other person's interests are. That's what selling really is. And then matching that person's interests with something that you may have or someone else that you know about. It's, it's that essential. So in reference to your earlier point, you know, for every Jasper Johns or, or Donald Judd or, or famous sculptor or painter that's out there, that it looks like from the outside that selling wasn't part of the trajectory. There's either A, a backstory, or it's the one in 10 billion exception. And for every one of those, there's 10 billion minus one that did have to sort of uh, develop those sales skills. And you're sort of saying that everyone is a salesperson. So um, I would follow, ask a follow-up question. Why, why does no one tell us this? Why does no one say, you're going to have to learn to sell, whether you're an artist or, or you're any kind of, uh, in any kind of profession? I, I, I don't know. Um, it, is, it is something that bothers me for sure. And I talk a lot about it in our, in our company, in our business. And as it relates to consultants and practitioners. And, and that's one of the uh, attractive points about the Clark Healings Fund is, is that's what we're about also, is unpacking that myth. So I, I don't know why it's out there, but there's certainly a cultural suggestion that if I'm an artist, oh, you must not be inclined to do business. I don't know if it starts in elementary school or what. 
but I want to add to that. I think, I think there are groups of people who are on this journey and I want to relay how my journey went, which was, I started out briefly with the myth of build it and they will come because I didn't understand what builds a business and what attracts an audience that that didn't last very long. After that, I understood we can't just build it. We need to build our audience as well. There are even times, Daniel, when you and I were in conversations years ago, when you believed I had that faith mentality and, and I didn't, it's just that I didn't know how. And so I want to be careful with people who are listening to this, that we get it, that you may not have the faith mentality and that you really do want to intentionally grow your audience. But now it's a question of what tools do I need and how do I do that? And that's how uh, most artists come into the Clark Hewings Fund orbit is that desire of, okay, I get it. I need to build an audience. Now, how do I do it? And for me, the last step in the journey is, okay, now I get it. And I get how to do it as well. And we're employing those techniques and we're growing our audience and so forth. And that's when the thriving starts to happen, which is the whole point. You know, so uh, I, I think a lot of people would say, well, all right, so you're saying everybody has to have sales skills, but I'm going to uh, challenge that and say, well, you know, why can't I just get somebody to do it for me? And of course, we, you know, the standard answer I give is if if you can't do it yourself, no one can, because partly even if you get a gallery or somebody to represent you, uh, very often you're still you still kind of hit a ceiling because uh, the best salesperson in the world may not be able to translate your narrative, your story, why you're you're valuable unless you can actually get it in the first place. So you almost have to prepare to sell, even if you're not going to sell. But that sort of brings me to a question for you, Steve. So most artists who do work, uh, I mean, this is sort of the big elephant in the room uh, when we're talking about art specifically. Most artists who do work that fits in a gallery, meaning, you know, the sculpture or the painting is in such a size and, and dimensions and appropriate, you know, it fits into a gallery setting will actually try to get gallery representation and often multiple galleries because galleries act as the sales agents. And increasingly, of course, we're seeing direct to audience selling. It's experiencing substantial growth. I wonder, first, what do you make of this shift, uh, which is making some galleries less comfortable, even though galleries do provide a service and most artists who can still want to work with galleries. What do you, what do you make of this shift where increasingly a lot of art is being sold directly to the consumer? I think it's fantastic. I'm in the camp of, you know, this is, this is part of thriving. doesn't mean you're going to not use galleries or use some other mechanism, but not only does it connect you more closely to your audience, but it also gives you a way to, to influence and control how you're presenting yourself to the world. This idea of you, you brought it out, you brought out the positive points and I have a couple of negative points. The positive reason for being able to sell yourself is only you know your story and you're, you're the origin of it. So you're the starting point. And even if you're not the best salesperson in the world, you're at least the starting point and, and you're, the, you're the source of inspiration from which others who may sell on your behalf will repeat the story. And that's, that's the case in our business, isn't it? I may not be the perfect, awesome salesperson for our company. But the story starts with us. And so I, I have to be. Otherwise, the story won't go as well when it's being retold by people who really are excellent salespeople. So 
positive story, and you mentioned that. The negative story is this. If we don't learn to take care of ourselves, we're going to be dependent on others who do. Now, sometimes we end up paired or in collaboration with people who are naturally caring and going to have an equitable relationship. But if we don't end up with people like that, if we don't end up with a gallery who's looking after us, we're going to get exploited. It happens, it repeats all over the world that there are malicious actors in the world who will exploit weakness. And the weakness is, hey, here's an artist who's really good, but they have no idea how to take care of themselves. This is how musicians get caught up into exploitative record companies. Prince talked about this. This is how actors get caught up into agencies and production companies uh, because they don't feel the confidence or feel that they have the skill to look after their own interests. So they become dependent on whomever is representing them. And sure, it's great if it goes well, and maybe that can help, but um, I personally don't want to expose myself and have that level of vulnerability. Uh, I would say the vulnerability is there even in the case of uh, sales agents who really do have your best interests at, at heart, and even when they're really good sales agents, because that doesn't mean they're as effective as they can be um, just having sort of the sales skills. So I, so I guess the example I would use, right now we're in the Business Accelerator Year 2 program at the Clark Healings Fund, and we're sort of in a phase where we're making the story um, or positioning the story as central, the story of this, any particular artist in the program, this particular artist, uh, and why their work matters and what their plan is for making it sustainable in the future. And very often, I think if you're at the mercy of sort of a gallery who, or, or another sales agent who sort of says, you know, buy this work now because, um, you personally identify with us. Uh, well, then your sales are always sort of limited by the number of people that personally identify with it or buy this because on the other end of the spectrum, because it's a good investment, this person's up and coming. So you're limited by until, you know, the market shifts a little bit and someone else is a good investment. So you're always sort of hit a ceiling because you're not being sold on the central narrative. And so for me, this the core sales skill is to figure out as an artist how you're going to connect with an audience. That you have to be able to do yourself. And that ultimately is the thing you have to make sure that any sales agent that represents you is going to do. And you won't know if they can and will do it until you know what that story is and you know how you're going to connect. So um, right now we're taking sort of the kind of generic stories we see uh, very often poke an artist and you'll get something like, you know, I believe everything is connected and there are energies all around us, dot, 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 fill in the blank. And it's sort of, yes, but so many other artists say the same thing. So what differentiates your work? And the answer is very often, I don't know. And so we dig down into, okay, yeah, but why you? And what's your plan? And what is this art achieving that has value to the world? What problem is it really solving? And I don't mean in a utilitarian way, but, but what, what is, uh, what's hot about this? You know, how does this hack normal perception and existence? So without all the concept words, et cetera. So, you know, that story piece, I just, you know, to piggyback on what you said is kind of a, an affirmation of, you know, even if you hire a professional salesperson, they're only as effective as uh, the limits of how much of your story you understand. So, but in response to this about agents that don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. There's a middle ground. There are agents that 
are just protecting themselves. So some galleries, for instance, try to shut down all private sales. They try to sort of put that in your contract. You're not allowed to sell anything directly to the public. You uh, and go even further. You're not allowed to have personal profiles on social media. We'll do all that. You'll be represented on our social media accounts as one of our stable of artists. They even use that phrase, the stable of artists. Um, you're part of our stable. And in, very often they give instructions like, okay, you're allowed to have a domain name. You can have a website, but you can't put any photos of yourself or a bio on it. You can have some pictures of your art, but it has to link back to our gallery and, you know, and so on. Or maybe you're not even allowed to, to do that. So my question to you is, is that self, what do we say to the galleries who are trying to make a living too? Um, is, is that self-protectiveness necessary, that degree of sort of shutting down the conversation with the audience, between the artist and the audience? Well, I think the, the answer to that comes from the artist's own sort of calculus as to, hmm, where am I willing to compromise? How much do I concede? How much do I strip away from myself and where the gallery is really becoming the wrapper and the gallery becomes more important than the artist. And that sort of request by the gallery is kind of an indicator as to how this relationship is going to go. And, I, and, and for me, this is a personal choice. Um, for me, as soon as a gallery or a representative or some other business is saying, well, we, we really need to be the prominent person. We need to be the gatekeeper. Um, that's a problem for me. And so... Even if I'm starving, even if I really need the business, I'm probably going to back away from it. And that's a personal conviction that comes from being able to survive on our own, knowing a little bit about how to sell. If we don't know how to sell, we may not have the conviction to stand by, no, I, the principle of I am the artist, this is my work, this needs to be prominent, and the gallery needs to be viewed as a vehicle, not the primary thing. I think record labels you know, often got in the way of this. Nobody buys an album because they love a particular record label. So, you know, and I think it's the same with galleries. You buy because you love the artist, you love the musician. And so long as we stand by that, it's going to work out. But yeah, I think it's a quick indicator of how a gallery or any other middle person views their role. Uh, that's a, a great analogy. You know, you're right. Um, growing up, I bought record albums a lot, as many teenagers uh or want to do. And I never bought an album because it was Columbia or Virgin Atlantic. Now there are some labels like Motown and there's some jazz labels that maybe that is a little bit different. You, you are going to buy everything that comes out on their label, but in general, uh, that I think is true. This kind of goes to, um, art agents too. Art agents often represent artists to galleries. So they go and they pitch the artist to a gallery. They act as an agent between the artist and, and landing gallery representation and sometimes multiple gallery representations. And so it sounds like it's really important to equip that artist agent with a sense of what you will and won't do. But if you have kind of a posture of I'll do anything, um, then that's it. You've kind of ended your career there <laughs> because you've basically said, you know, I'll do anything. It's like saying I'll do anything to get a record cut. And there's so many bands that did that during the British invasion that basically didn't make any money. And didn't found out they didn't hold the rights to their own music and, and things like that because that momentary allure of hey i've got a label i made a record that's great i actually met a, a musician that was traveling around selling her records 
at coffee shops because um, she didn't own the rights to them and she was working off her contract to pay for the original pressing of the the album <laughs> before she was allowed to start making any actual money of herself. Yeah. So she worked for tips uh, at the coffee shops and uh, she's stellar, fantastic. I won't tell you who she is. She's in my Spotify list. I love her. But but she was working for tips at the coffee shop and then uh, anything the coffee shop actually paid was used to, went straight to the guy um, that, you know, had the label that minted her CDs. That's tough. <laughs> Sad story, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to ask you though, so we're talking about sales with regard to art. And I think a lot of artists hear this and they they think, well, everything you're saying, Steve, Daniel, well and good uh, if we're talking about selling widgets here uh, or even selling ice cream cones out of the back of a truck or selling textiles at either a wholesale or a retail level. But this is art. Um, so my question to you is, do you think that sales techniques differ by sector, uh, big business, small business, that they differ by industry enough that, um, there are, that, that dis that potential dismissal of what, what we're saying is warranted or is it even more important, uh, because of the differences? No, I think it, it mostly overlaps. So you might say, well, Steve, are you really going to connect industrial sales of widgets to selling of art? And yes, for the most part. And, and there are certainly differences, and that changes the sales conversation. But uh, here we go. I'm going to try, to try to make the case. So I think it's mostly similar because even if we're selling some sort of industrial widget solution, whether it's a, a tool, a robot, or parts, for the iPhone, what we're really doing is in the business world, we're solving a problem. And what closes the deal is not the analytical, it solves the problem, that's part of it. But what really closes the deal is that the buyer, whether it's an individual or a committee, has two things. One, a sense of relief of, wow, this really does it. It's an emotional feeling, it's not an intellectual concept. And two, the emotional confidence that the supplier is going to continue to do that and continue to follow through. And they feel that relationship connection like, yes, I can really depend on Steve to follow through. His company is going to supply us with this. I don't have to worry about it anymore. So in the art world, we're not necessarily solving problems in that way, but there's an emotional connection there of, oh, this artist really conveys what I feel and I'm not able to express this myself or this musician. I love listening to this person because that's how I felt when I broke up or that's how I felt when I was on top of the world. And um, I listened to that to feel that way again. So the sleight of hand where it doesn't overlap is in business, we might be talking about solving a particular problem. We're not necessarily solving problems in art, but, but where it does overlap is the emotional connection that we're having. Sales get done in the end, on that emotional sense of confidence that we have in the business world with the person who's selling to us, or in the art world, it's that emotional connection that we have with our audience and the particular buyer. So yeah, I would say mostly overlap with a few differences because you know, from business to business, the, the sale does take some different twists and turns depending on what the subject is. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually spin off of something you said, which is, you know, maybe art doesn't solve a problem in the same way a widget does. And I'm going to, I'm going to push back, I'm going to only slightly disagree with you, Steve. I'm going to push back a little bit and say, 
You know, uh, I think people want an example. Um, and I'm going to use an example of Willie Bo Richardson. So Willie Bo Richardson is a visual artist that is also a fellow uh, in CHF's Business Accelerator Program. He's an executive fellow. Uh, and so in his second year, and Willie solves a problem. His art solves a problem. And so the problem is that of artness. And that's a phrase I made up. So I don't know if Willie would use this term, but he solves the problem of artness uh, intruding into the experience of actually art. So here's what Willie does. Willie, you know, if you go into like a corporate lobby or you go into a, ho a giant hotel space, you've been in those sprawling, like if you go to the, the Hyatt in, you know, Manhattan, uh, it's this sprawling place on the ground floor with, you can look up and see three floors up, you know, the mezzanine level and so on. It, it's just sort of a never ending place. You go into a place like that and if you see art on the wall in sort of a frame, you know, are you going to really do what you do in a museum, which is sit down on a bench and stare at it for a while? Or are you going to walk by it? And either one of those is kind of uh, a problem in that environment because, you know, the, the artness, the fact that it's wrapped in a frame is kind of intruding into the experience. It's not normal for a lobby. Uh, it, you know, it's not a museum. And it's also, you don't want to just ignore the artness. So Willie's kind of conjecture is that the, the art doesn't get fully experienced. And he is a maker of textiles of fine art quality. So his art fills spaces like that with things that you don't necessarily notice right off if you're hunting for the art. Like, where's the art? It's not in a frame. It's not a sculpture on a pedestal because it's not in a frame or on a pedestal. It's part of the space itself. But because it's fine art quality, if as you settle into the space, it begins to settle into you. You sort of begin to pick up that you're surrounded by the same experience that art gives you if you were to sit and stare at it. And so the these particular images begin to settle in. And yes, it may be the fabrics on the wall uh, or the wallpaper or the curtains or or something like that. You didn't really realize at first that you were experiencing the art because he had subtracted the frame, subtracted the artness. So he's kind of solving a problem. And his natural partners are these commercial buyers and commercial venues. And, uh, and so I think he's got a long and promising <laughs> sales career there. I think it's it's an ingenious model. And, and of course, his work is brilliant. For anybody that doesn't know, just Google Willie Bo Richardson and, and you're going to find him. So, so we've talked about that art solving a problem. We've talked about, um, you kind of unpacked that myth, Steve, of selling as an innate skill of the few, you know, the priesthood of the salesperson. And, and you've kind of said, look, everybody is essentially selling or telling their story, if you will. But I want to challenge you again with what I think some artists are likely to say. And I don't mean because they're artists. I think any of us hearing this, if we were a group of people and you were selling, go out and saying, go out and sell your, your services as handymen or, or as uh, go out and sell your services as stockbrokers, we might bring this up. Selling, if you ask a salesperson what selling is, he'll say it's solving a problem for somebody. If you ask uh, most of the people that are not considering themselves professional salespersons, they'll say it's faking. Selling is faking. Selling is tricking somebody emotionally into doing something. It's manipulating them. Mm. It's, it's all kind of a sleight of hand. And so what people are basically saying is there's an ethical um, challenge there. And as I sort of advocate for the audience here and, and say, all right, so we're all listening out here. Steve, uh, what do you think? Is selling sleight of hand or or is it uh, more honorable than that it's definitely more honorable than that selling is an honorable 
profession when it's done as selling. And I don't know how selling has become conflated with what's actually fraud and con. A, a, a con scheme or, or a confidence game or a, or a, a fraud is that. It's, that's not selling. So some people believe selling is when we're trying to talk somebody into buying something or parting with their money for reasons that aren't, aren't genuine or legitimate. But that's, that's not actually the definition of selling. Selling is when we're connecting someone uh, with a solution or a feeling that they welcome into their lives. And so I, I only look at, at the, the world of selling in, in the correct definition of it. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the unpacking of it. But I want to, there's a practical aspect to selling. And I love what you're saying about solving a problem, even in art. Uh, Quincy Jones is one of my favorite examples of this. You know, some of his personal views may not be everybody's cup of tea, but it, it's, he's indisputably a, a master musician, had an amazing career. And a lot of times in interviews, he'll talk about the kind of hustle that was necessary to survive and, and become, you know, a thriving musician. And he, uh, he talks about some of the compromises and some of the things he needed to do. So, for example, if he was backing a, a singer that only had a certain range, then he doesn't get to play in the keys that he necessarily prefers to. And he's, as a, he, the problem he needs to solve is to be able to play in a key that fits and supports the vocalist who's going to be performing and uh, that's a practical thing, and, and, and very much the way that you're describing your work has to fit in the gallery in a certain way. He, and he talked about some of the gigs that he needed to take in the early days and, and the ways he, he hustled to, to become a thriving musician. So if he had stood his, uh, not even stood his ground, if he just said, you know what, I'm only pay- playing my music the way I want, it is my art, I'm not going to compromise, I'm not going to sell out, we would never know who... Quincy Jones is, but no, he took that extra step and he solved really practical problems that we in the audience never really think about. Well, that, you know, that's, um, something that I think a lot of artists, that's the, the key thing that they need to solve, uh, is what problem do I solve? You know, when we say, tell your story very often, Artists are are saying my story is that I'm I'm in love with nature and beauty and I, I like to carve out of wood and I'm like all right that's not what I, what I mean that's good but that's your bio um, but instead you know tell us the story of your work uh, I'm gonna give one more example uh, just because it, it's so fun to do this and we get to feature these amazing artists so another example is uh, Greg Chadwick so Greg is spelled with two G's for anybody googling him G R E G G Uh, So Greg Chadwick. So Greg paints trains and not just any trains. These are like those art deco posters. You see the magnificent skyscrapers and blimps and trains and jets that, you know, typified an era of just, you know, magnificent human creation. And see, he does this and it's really great. And if that's all there was, you know, we could kind of go, well, that's cool. Um, But of course, I could also just buy one of those art deco posters. (laughs) So, so what is... What is Greg doing? What problem is he he's solving? Other than the fact the art is it's truly cool. 
And the answer to that is that there's a lot of people sort of on the outside of art because they look at something that to them looks like splotches on a wall and they don't get it. And they kind of shake their heads and walk away and they, they don't really participate in art or they write it off as uh, kind of an aesthetic distraction or they let somebody else do all the thinking and buying sort of like, you know, I don't know anything about art. Let's hire a decorator. She'll pick out what goes on the walls. Hopefully it'll be good. And then you kind of see that Mad Men environment. You remember in Mad Men, there's an episode where Sterling, uh, I think it's Frank Sterling, you know, asks somebody what they think of a Rothko. You know, it's hanging over his desk. And, you know, do you like this art? And the point is, I, I don't know. Uh, I was told to buy it. It's supposed to be worth a lot someday. Whether I like it or not, I don't know. You'll have to tell me. Well, what Greg does with these these objects, these physical things that he paints, uh, and he ties them into historical places. Like he'll paint a train that was iconic for St. Louis or another train that was iconic for Denver. And he, he gets people involved in these really, in these symbols of place and symbols of historical context with which they already identify. And that becomes their entry point to art. It's like if you and I really liked cool cars, and we, you know, and so we see a 69 Camaro, that's really cool. But now you see a fine artist that gives us something that's truly a work of fine art that iconifies the, you know, the Corvette, but perhaps a specific, if there were a specific Corvette that were tied in with my, you know, hometown of Philadelphia or something like that, then uh, that's what Greg does. And so he gets people, he pulls people into a deeper aesthetic and a deeper involvement with art by saying, let's start with what you think, what you really identify with, your, your sense of place and your sense of cool things. And let, let's build from there. So uh, he's, like a, he's like a teacher in that regard. And that's a problem he solves. And that's hot stuff. Uh, I can sell that all day long, you know, <laughs> and he's on top of that. He's got a really good, I won't go into it this show, but he's, He's got an exceptionally good uh, business plan for taking this show on the road. And uh, I think he's like Willie Bo Richardson. Greg Chadwick's going to be one to watch. And I don't say that just because he's one of our fellows. I say that because, yeah, I I would know why I hung a Greg, Ch a Greg Chadwick on the wall. So I, I really like what we're talking about, Steve. Uh, I don't mean to steal your thunder there. I, I get excited, as you know, by storytelling. Um, I... I want to ask you a little bit more personal question and uh, to kind of wind down the show and, and finish up our segment on sales. So selling has been a struggle for you personally. You've had an, your own story, your own arc, your trajectory of going from point A to point B. Other than the intellect, not realizing the intellectual problem of, hey, I, I really need to learn how to sell or I thought I could build it and they will come. What about the emotional side? What what was the source of the agony that you had to overcome or the, you know, the point of sh that that shifted? For me, that middle period of accepting that we need to sell, I need to sell. Well, no, I take that back. Uh, that middle period of accepting that sales is important was the longest and the most painful. That was many years long and a lot of uh, wandering in the desert, uh, lost in the wilderness. Um, the emotional hangup was this myth, this belief that uh, people are natural sales salespersons, and if you're not a natural already, then you know somebody else needs to do it. And it put a dependency into my life, and so I was I was starving in the wilderness, not literally, but it it was a hard life, and so the thing that finally broke it that shoved me through is 
you know, waking up every morning and I'm still in the wilderness. There is nobody coming to save me. There will be no rescue. Nobody knows I'm here. And objectively, nobody cares. And I, I don't mean that it's a cruel world. I mean, you know, you got to save yourself first. And the thing that drove me was more of a frustration and anger and not a, not a, not a positive. It was putting my foot down enough. I will do this if this is what it takes to survive. And so it was that raw determination that shifted it. And I came to believe, nope, wilderness survival skills are for everybody. And so in modern life, wilderness survival skills are really selling. And I will, I will never go back. I will never go back to believing that sales skills are reserved for a special few who are born as more social people and the rest of this. And uh, they, that those particular personal gifts may make them more adept in certain social selling, certain selling situations, but, but not universally so. And so, yeah, that's kind of my story. And that's why I'm so committed to it is because those were some long, dark years. That's a great story. And I can hear the, the passion and the conviction in your voice. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Steve's work, visit freeagentsource.com. That's freeagentsource.com. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhealingsfund.org donate. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Steve. It's been really great having you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Daniel.